USMNT fans, and welcome back to the One Goal US Soccer Podcast. We're here to talk about everything USMNT related as we follow and support the team on their route back to the World Cup in 2022 and beyond. Uh, from this podcast, you can expect interviews with players and special guests, roundtable conversation with One Goal writers, and wide-ranging USMNT-based discussion. George, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing lovely. I've been a lot of soccer on my TV, so i um, really couldn't be upset. Me too. I've really been enjoying the uh, MLS's back games, and there's been a lot of good stuff going on. Um, in terms of newsworthy stuff, the first thing I think we should touch on is CONCACAF changing their qualifying uh, format. Um, there will now be eight teams. You can call it either the Ocho, uh, the Octagon. I mean, do you have any other suggestions for what we should call it? I really like the Ocho personally. You know, it just has that ring to it. The same way yeah. the Hex does. I don't think the Octagon has that same ring. I really like, like, oh, are the USA going to qualify from the Ocho? I really hope Canada make the Ocho. But if you say, like, Christian Pulisic played really well in the Octagon last night, just doesn't have that same ring to it. So I'm hoping beyond we can all agree with the Ocho. Yeah, no, I think the Ocho is kind of like a cool thing. And I actually kind of hope that ESPN starts covering more soccer because then we can have the Ocho on the Ocho and they could play it on the Ocho. You know what I mean? So we could double up. I don't, but, think, I don't think we're worried for that yet. Yeah, that's just that's a long-term goal of mine. But you know, it's very interesting uh, in terms of the concrete uh, changes. The first five teams, uh, so Mexico, U.S., Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Honduras, are progressing directly to the final round. And then in 2021, uh, we'll get started with that qualifying, and we will go forward and play the teams that make it through uh, the first three teams to join us in the Ocho. Uh, you talk about our U.S. men's national team and how 2021 is a big year for us. I know in the last podcast we touched about 2026 being the year. But again, with so many of our young players getting close to the first team, I think like Richie Ledesma, I think Yuli Lainez, I think Tim Weah getting back from injury. I think pushing qualifying back to 2021 is a great opportunity for us because it gives more time for our young players to emerge and make themselves part of the U.S. soccer future uh, in the immediate future and play a meaningful role in qualifying. So I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps that, you know, there's a little bit more time for Berhalter to really get a cohesive team together. For example, people are saying Gio Reyna, you know, he's starting. Like everyone's kind of already assumed that Gio Reyna is a starter now, but he would have possibly been going into World Cup qualifying without, you know, starting meaningful games, games, any game for the U.S. So on that hand, it is a good good thing that, you know, there's some time. But then on the other hand, if games were tomorrow, if games were next week, if games were next month, if only two teams were qualifying, no matter what, the U.S. has to qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, no, 100 percent, especially after, well, I guess we won't speak on what happened in uh, the previous World Cup qualifying. But, you know, I think, like you said, regardless of when qualifying would have been, it is imperative that we do qualify. And I think this just makes it easier. You know, and like I said, it just gives us more opportunity to bring in other players. And we haven't had any clarity from U.S. soccer in terms of potential friendlies. But I think it's really interesting when you look at, like, how things are going to shape up, because I can't imagine... Uh, having the MLS players and the European players in the same camp, like right now, maybe in a couple months. But I think there's definitely a possibility that we could see some sort of October camp with all European players or something like that, because I think it'd be really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that in general? That's probably what would be if the camp was to occur, you know, in the fall, it would be an all European camp. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because that probably means, you know, a guy like Richie Ledesma gets his first call up. 
maybe Chris Gloucester and Sebastian Soto, who both celebrated the 20th birthday. So shout out to them on that. But, you know, it does give an opportunity for those younger European guys to get a chance at a national team camp because, you know, you have the January camp. If it wasn't for the January camp, MLS guys like Sam Vines, Chase Gaspar, Brendan Aronson probably aren't getting that call up. But there's no really European equivalent, so it's good for them to have that. Yeah, I know for me especially, I'm kind of one of those closer to being a Euro snob than an MLS homer. Uh, so I think it would be really cool to say, you know, there's a chance for a lot of young guys, like you mentioned, to get their feet wet with U.S. soccer. And I think of like Chris Richards and those kind of guys who are going to be part of that March camp. Nicholas Gionaki, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But like you said, it's just another opportunity to bring in different options to see what we have and to give these players kind of a good opportunity also going into their seasons. I know most seasons will be starting up again around October, but I think it'll be cool. We'll see who's starting to break in. And then the October camp, if we have one, could be a nice start to their international career. And then it could all come to a head in 2021 when we really start getting into qualifying. But of course, one of the key players to talk about when it comes to qualifying is Christian Pulisic. And he just finished his Premier League season with Chelsea. And what a season it was. Chelsea still has their FA Cup final coming up this weekend. And they also have a Champions League return leg with Bayern Munich, even though they're down 3-0. And in terms of Bayern Munich stuff, Chris Richards was named in that squad and so was Malik Tillman. But that's besides the point for now. Let's talk Pulisic, man. What a season, huh? Yeah, I think the thing with Pulisic, and I think it was uh, Gary Lineker who tweeted out, like, you know, Christian Pulisic is on his way to becoming the first, you know, American superstar. And there were some people in the comments who took offense to that. They threw out Tim Howard's name they threw out Donovan's name, Dempsey's name. And I will say, I respect all of those guys. Clint Dempsey was a phenomenal player in the Premier League. There's a reason why Liverpool wanted him at the time. And there's a reason why he got his move to Spurs, even though it didn't necessarily work out. Donovan was another great player, though he only really dipped his toes in Europe, never really fully submerged. And while all those guys are great, and while Pulisic still does have a long way to go before he is, you know, the unquestionable U.S. soccer GOAT. I think when you talk about superstar, you think about world superstar, someone who's challenging for Ballon d'Or, someone who's playing for a top team that's making it deep in the Champions League. And the fact of the matter is USA has not had that player yet. Yes, we've had, you know, good players who've been significant members of teams in Europe, but we really haven't had that superstar. Pretty much from the time he was 18 years old, we thought Christian Pulisic could be that guy. He stuttered a little bit in his last season at Dortmund. Even his the first half of his Chelsea career, the only real highlight was the Burnley game where he got a hat trick. The Christian Pulisic that we saw from Project Restart showed every single member of not only the U.S. soccer community, but the world community, why this guy is one of the best young up-and-coming talents. And sometimes it's hard to forget he's only 21 years old, turning 22 later this year. Just the performances and the consistency that he's shown in these recent games has been phenomenal. I think probably the highlight of that is the Liverpool game. Yes, they you know lost, but Liverpool is you know best in the Premier League, current Champions League holders. They themselves think they're the best team to ever play this game. And there he was, slicing through Trent Alexander-Arnold, slicing through Fabinho, slicing through Joe Gomez, like, like they weren't even there. He came off the bench and Chelsea got some sort of life. And I think... That just epitomized Christian Pulisic's form right now. And you add in Timo Werner, you add in Hakim Ziyech, probably Kai Havertz. If you have these pieces around Pulisic, it's not going to diminish from his game. It's only going to make him better. So I think what I saw from Christian Pulisic these past couple of weeks 
as a U.S. soccer fan, it makes me excited. It reinvigorates what we all felt when he was breaking in Dortmund, when he got that move to Chelsea. Shut up those critics who were saying, why is Chelsea spending all this money on an American player? No, I completely agree. I remember when Chelsea first bought him. And even me, I was a little skeptical. I was like, well, 58 million, that's kind of a lot. Is this, you know, he's a great player, but is there any marketing involved in this? And, you know, you can't say any of that's true anymore. He's really shown, like you said, the Burnley game was a nice highlight, but again, it was Burnley. You know, that's, if you're really a great player, you should tear up Burnley. But he comes in against Liverpool, and I was watching that game, like I said in the last podcast. I'm a huge Liverpool fan. I was watching with my friend who's a Chelsea fan, and he gave me this look, and I was like, yep. He just ran through us, you know, and I was like, well, I feel great as an American, but at the same time, my club team, Liverpool, he just completely ran through him. And it just, it's very exciting as an American soccer fan. You know, like you said, we've had Clint Dempsey, we've had Landon Donovan. These guys are stars, but they were American soccer stars. And now you look at Pulisic, who is a world soccer star. You know, I saw some graph and it was talking about his dribbling skills and I saw he was listed above Mbappe. And I'm not saying that Christian Pulisic is better than Kylian Mbappe. He's not right now. He might be one day, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. But like I was saying, Pulisic, you can't say enough about the kid. You know, everyone was knocking on him. Oh, is he going to have a starting role with Chelsea? Oh, Pedro and William, they're both established wingers. And now we're talking about they bring in Werner, they bring in Zayic, they bring in Havertz. And it's like, oh, look what they've done to build around Pulisic. You know, and it's just cool to see this guy that everyone was so worried about how he's going to fit in. And now we're talking about how are others going to fit around him. An American doing that. Yeah, it scares me a little bit. I'm a Man U fan, so obviously I want Man U to do well. But like you said, you have this American superstar, so I want Pulisic to do well. But if Pulisic does well, that means that Chelsea's doing well. So I have that internal conflict. So like you said, as an American, I couldn't be happier when you see these big time, as you say, like Euro snobs, you know, those guys who go around saying, oh, Americans, why do you call it soccer? And then they're out here praising an American, you know, it brings a little smile on my face. Yeah. And I, I, I remember seeing something not to pick fun at United, but I remember seeing some stat. It was like Daniel James goals for the first couple of months compared to Pulisic. And then someone like quote retweeted the tweet and it was like Daniel James has no goals since this tweet. And Pulisic has just let the world on fire. And it's a very exciting time for U.S. soccer. And I just I'm excited to see him in the Champions League. I'm excited to see him in the FA Cup. And I'm excited to see him going forward. You can't stress that enough. But we talk about Pulisic. We talk about Reyna. One thing I'm really interested in is when we come back, when the next time U.S. soccer gets together, next time we play a competitive game, what that looks like. And I saw on Twitter, I'm sure you've seen, and for other followers, I encourage you to look at uh, Suseta. Is that how you pronounce it? I think Susayeta, probably. Susayeta, Susetta. Apologies if I don't know how to pronounce it. Please come find me and tell me how to pronounce it. Uh, but he posted a great image of what the attacking formation would look like and how we would defend. Uh, The way he looked at it was kind of having the back four, three midfielders, and then three up top. But when we morph into an attack, it kind of shifts with the back line, like six midfielder dropping in as the third center back and the left back and the right back pushing up as more de facto wingers and having Pulisic and someone else, whether that be Reyna, tucking inside and kind of having the overlapping runs of a Dest, a Robinson, whoever may be on the outside. So I'm just curious, George, how do you kind of envision the lineup looking? What do you think of this potential figuration and formation? Do you have any worries, concerns? The way it's set up, it's something that could work. Personally, I don't know if it's necessarily something that I would like to see the team play. It's not 
necessarily what Berhalter has done in the past. But, you know, we have seen some teams do that. It Manchester United does it a little bit where you have Nemanja Matic drop in a center back position alongside Lindolf Maguire. So we have seen some top teams, you know, play with this formation. But now the question comes, do we have the correct personnel to do that? Because the way I would envision a U.S. team going forward, if you talk about the midfield specifically, it would be Tyler Adams at the six, Weston McKinney at the eight, and then at the 10, somebody, you know, we're waiting for a Palma call to break out, a Ledesma, a Brendan Aronson, you know, maybe Leggett if he gets under his feet because he's more experienced, someone in that mold. But then if you do this, you know, formation where you have the six drop back as a third center back, I don't think Tyler Adams is the right person to do that. I think it diminishes his qualities, which is, you know, energy being a hub. I don't know if Tyler Adams himself would like to spend the majority of his time playing pretty much as a defender in a back three. So in that case, then you would kind of put Adams and McKinney as dual eights, you know, play to their strengths. And that means you need a third person who'd be willing to drop at center back. And it'd be, you know, the same case of who breaks out. Would it be Michael Bradley? You know, we saw him against NYCSC a couple of days ago. He didn't look quite up to it. Maybe age is catching up to him. You have a James Sands who I think would be great for that role, but is he ready yet? Jackson Yule, would Jackson Yule be able to spend time consistently as part of a back three? So it goes to say, I don't know if necessarily we have the personnel to do that. I think it definitely is an intriguing option. I think it's one that if we have those games in the fall, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to seeing, even if it's just for just a half. But I definitely think, you know, it is something that could possibly be tinkered with. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's really interesting. I actually kind of like the idea of having Adams as that third center back because if you look at how he plays with Leipzig, he often kind of drops in is is kind of the in-between option uh, between the center backs. And I don't necessarily think that he would be best uh, playing as a third center back. But like you mentioned, his work rate uh, and all of those things, his, his energy and being this hub, I think it's an opportunity for him to kind of be an in-between six slash defender. And I think he could come up a little more. And of course, that runs the risk of getting bit in defense. But you talk about someone like Yule, who I worry about his athleticism and his speed being the third center back. And I think Tyler Adams or even Weston McKinney, like those guys are athletes. You know, they're very strong. They can play center back if they have to in a pinch. And so one of those kind of destroyer guys versus Yule, who would kind of come creep into the attack, like we saw with the earthquakes where he kind of steps into the hole and distributes as that sort of hub. But I worry about his athleticism. And so I think when I think of the third center back position, I want someone who's strong, who can recover. And I worry about Yule's recovery. And I think Sands, like you mentioned, is an interesting option uh, because, again, he can play as either a center back and he's comfortable, comfortable passing as a center back or as a center defensive mid, like we saw again with the Toronto FC game. So I think that's really interesting. But one spot that I also thought was really interesting when you talk about the lineup is, like you mentioned, legit, our, our easily our biggest weakness in our lineup is at the 10. You know, we tried Pulisic there, and he, he's fine, but that's not his best position. Obviously, he's a world-class winger for Chelsea, so I think we should figure out a way to get the best out of him that way. And you talk about Gio Reyna as a 10th lousing prospect. I think he also fits as more of an in- inverted winger and someone that can play centrally or can drift out to the wing, you know, because it gives him the option to say, hey, come in, touch it around, and go outside if you need to. So I think that's a really good opportunity or a possibility there. And I'm not exactly sure how it all comes together because you think it really works if we have Reyna and Pulisic as those two wingers slash inward guys. I think that really works. But you replace that with Awea, I'm not sure he's as comfortable coming inside. And I also think you look at the outside in terms of left back and right back, 
that's perfect for Anthony Robinson. That's perfect for Serginio Dest, right? But say something happens to Robinson, is Sam Vines next? Or are we going to move over Dest to the, the left? And are we going to play Cannon on the right? Are we comfortable with Cannon going forward? Is that a spot for DeAndre Yedlin? It's not necessarily a basic system. Like I said, it's not a system we've seen Burhalter utilized before. But no, you're talking about all those intricacies. Do we have a guy who we know are comfortable playing as a six and dropping back to center back? Do we have two outside backs we trust being able to make meaningful contributions in the attacking third the majority of the time? Those are questions that need to be answered, which is why if it's something that you test out as of right now, if you really think about the scope of the team, we just play a safer 4-3-3. And obviously the best team, they're the ones that take risks. The best teams are the ones that have those systems that coaches implement, which is why I think moving forward at some point, this setup could be something that works, but we need to qualify for the World Cup. We need to personnel who would be able to fit that now which I don't know if we have at this exact moment. Yeah, no, I guess I guess you make a really good point. In terms of right now, that's the best move. The idea of building possession and dominating games is something that I'm really captivated by. And like, I don't think we're ready to say, oh, we can dominate games. But I also don't think it's fair to say that we're not good enough to try to dominate games. You know, we have some key players. We have a world-class superstar in Pulisic. We have a strong center defender in John Brooks. We have strong companions next to him, whether that be a Chris Richards soon, whether that be a Matt Miazga, Cameron Carter-Vickers. You know, we have Serginho Dest as a right back who can come up. We have Anthony Robinson. Those, you know, it's 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 there if we want to try it. And I think it's, it's going to take some confidence and it'll take some time to work through it. But it's one of those things where I feel like the risk if it were to pay off, would be worth it in a friendly. And I think if you can carry that system and build upon it, then it might be worth it in the long run. But that's a risk you have to take. But you have Darlington Nagby and the Columbus crew going tonight. Is Darlington Nagby one of those people you look at and say he could kind of drop him in between the center backs and play as that six? For me personally, no. Once again, I think that diminishes Darlington Nagby's talent. He's somebody who you want combining on the ball kind of as that pace setter. If the six, as I see it, it's not a job I don't think Darlington Nagby could do, but it also requires a sense of dirtiness, and which is why, yes, that's something that, for example, Tyler Adams can do, and maybe Nagby plays ahead of him. I think in the Susayeta setup, I don't think Darlington Nagby would be that guy who sits in the back three, but I think in no matter what shape or form you play for the national team, you could use a Darlington Nagby type of player as an eight to keep the ball moving. I guess another person that really interests me in terms of, his, I guess, news that relates to U.S. soccer is, as you mentioned on the last podcast, and I'll mention again, uh, Lille, I guess, has finalized the sale of Victor Omaishin. Is that how you pronounce it? Omaishin? Oshiman. Oshiman. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Oshiman uh, to uh, Napoli for around 50 million and i think that's really interesting because it opens up a possible opportunity for tim Weah. and there's a big debate we could have about what's tim Weah's best position but i think going into 2020 2021 the first thing is his health uh, he had the hamstring injury that kept him out for the beginning of the year tried to come back re-aggravated it but i think the opportunity for tim Weah to emerge is very interesting looking in terms of next season do you have any thoughts on tim Weah in terms of his national team uh, best role I think Tim Weah's best role is on the field. When I say that, I mean by he's had his injury problems, but I wouldn't worry about that. Almost in the same vein, I talked about Josh Sargent last week where it's the same thing with Tim Weah. He's only 20 years old. And if I know Tim Weah, what I've seen from him as a young player, the way he carries himself, he loves that people are starting to doubt him. 
he's absolutely thriving on that right now because when he comes back, he's going to prove any doubters wrong. So I do not have any sort of concerns of Tamoya right now. He cannot play for the national team for another year, and I'd be completely fine with Timway and have the utmost confidence that when 2022 comes around, Timway will be ready. Is it on the wing? Is it at forward? I don't know. Is he going to start? I don't know. But is Timway going to be a key player for this national team? Absolutely. No, I remember watching the U20 World Cup, especially the game against, I think it was Venezuela. And you see him just like flicking the ball over the defender and then rifling a shot that just missed. And you see like the confidence. And I think of the players in our player pool. And I really like a winger or a forward with confidence. He played for PSG. It might have been just for one appearance or two. But he has the pedigree, whether that's rooted in his father or not. He's gotten this far. And Lille paid a handsome sum for him. And I think about Lille as a really great club for his development. And Tim, if you're listening to this, come on the pod. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk all things U.S. soccer. Actually, I have a sidebar. You know, I was just thinking about left backs and we're talking about left backs who could come in. And I think historically, as you look at left back, left back has been a problem position for the U.S. And I've been watching the MLS's back tournament and I've seen so many American right backs who really haven't gotten national team looks. You have Jake Nerwinski on Vancouver Whitecaps, who's an every game starter. Tommy Thompson on San Jose Earthquakes, who's a starter. Aaron Herrera, who's been with the U23s, but you know he's a starter for Salt Lake. Zarek Valentin, starter for Houston Dynamo. Ray Gaddis, been starting for Philadelphia Union since 2012. You have Keegan Rosenberry, who had a call up and no appearances. Tristan Blackman, who's the only starter on LAFC, who are the best team in the league. You have Chris Duvall, who's going to play tonight for Portland Timbers. You have Brandon By on, you know, Revolution. The list goes on and on. And then you kind of look at the American left backs, and you have Gutman, you have Vines. Lima is a right-footed left back. Like this. Yeah, exactly. And you know what all those guys have in common? They've all been called up. So I think it's just very interesting where – if you're an American right back or American left back rather, and you put together a decent spell of games, you are going to get called up. Exactly why we saw Daniel Lovitz play in the Gold Cup. Daniel Lovitz isn't necessarily you know, a world beater, but he's also not a bad player. But it was a position where he got himself in the team. And I just think it's very interesting. Kind of the left back position is so up in the air. It's so up for grabs that literally a player could come into the league for a couple months and put their name in the conversation. Whereas you have right backs who've been plying their trade for years on years, have an all-star appearance and don't necessarily, you know, get that extensive look. Think about our left back picture, even for the longest time, like the last real solid left back we have is probably Demarcus Beasley and no disrespect to Fabian Johnson, but he was not a left back. He was forced to play there because we really had nobody else, you know, yeah, even, even Beasley was a converted left winger to left back. Yeah, I know that's a good point. And now we have Anthony Robinson, who, like we mentioned in the last podcast, was really solid this year in the championship. And he's going to make the move somewhere else. And hopefully he becomes an option um, for the left back position. But I'm also just encouraged by the prospects. You know, I'm like, okay, is it pretty? Is Anthony Robinson the guy forever? Maybe not. Maybe he is. And I hope he becomes that. But there are guys behind him who make me feel confident that, you know, we don't have necessarily a world beater at left back. But at least there's some confidence that, you know, if there's an injury to Anthony Robinson, it wouldn't be Daniel Levitt, which is the first name that gets called back in. You know, there's at least some depth there now. Just I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we have if you look across youth national teams, you have Chris Gloucester. You obviously have Kobe Hernandez Foster. 
You have Travion Souza, who's apparently doing well at Hamburg and should be making yeah, a good shout debut soon. So, yeah, you have you have the guys. So if Chris Gloucester puts together maybe a string of first-team appearances at PSV, Chris Gloucester pu- immediately has put himself in contention to start, which I think isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, there is an opportunity for these left-backs to emerge. If you are a left-back and you put together a string of games, you have a solid chance at the job, which I think is an encouraging thing. It's always exciting for U.S. soccer, whether that's good, exciting, or bad, exciting. But there's a lot of good news going on. Since we last talked, you know, a lot of the young American prospects have kept putting together strong performances. Mark McKenzie, another solid showing at the back of Philadelphia Union, still has those Celtic links. We'll see what happens. Brendan Aronson, once again, a solid game. Didn't necessarily do anything that we didn't expect of him, but, you know, just another solid game all around. Jackson Ewell again for San Jose Earthquakes. We even saw a little Cade Cowell appearance off the bench. He looks like, you know, Mateus Almeida sees him as part of the first team at 16 years old. That's great. We mentioned James Sands for NYCFC. Solid showing. Completely outplayed Michael Bradley off the park. Yeah, I think that's just been the theme. You know, we've seen these young guys who, you know, after the first couple performances, people were like, these guys are amazing. You know, they're having amazing tournaments. And rather than under the pressure and you know maybe have a slow game they've just been going from strength to strength so you know we'll see what happens in those quarterfinals and uh portland timbers cincinnati a lot of guys of interest in that game you have frankie amaya who's had a good tournament andrew gutman who's been solid Abobi say of course three goals in three games eric williamson you know finally getting extended run so yeah i think it's been good to watch yeah, no, I agree. I guess it's just one of those things where it's like, it's just cool seeing American players. You know, it doesn't really matter the level for me. Like, I'm just a fan of American soccer in general. And you mentioned like a Frankie Amaya, who kind of people thought, forgot about in the U20 picture, in the U23 picture. But people forget that he was the number one overall pick in the MLS Super Draft. You know, he has talent. Eric Williamson played for the U23s. There's a lot of talent around there. And I think just watching the MLS's back tournament, it keeps reminding me that, you know, a lot of our prospects don't work out. But you still look at them and you say, oh, that's why they were so highly, you know, highly regarded. And you mentioned players just getting appearances like the Seattle Sounders. I have to respect their coach, even though he didn't play a great tactical game against LAFC. I just thought it was cool to say he brought on the young guys at the end, you know. But then you see another goal by Giassi Zardes and you're like, oh, that means he's still in an action team picture. But then it's like, no, 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 Giassi Zardes is still performing. That's great for him. You know what I mean? So I think it's really yeah. cool. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing with Burhalter. A lot of people give him some, you know, slack in different areas. But the one thing I can honestly say that definitely under Jurgen Klinsmann, I don't think Dave Sarachin counts because everyone and their mom got a call up under him. But I think just in terms of normal times, these players see the pathway to the national team. Greg Burhalter has been watching every single game. And obviously you have the Yules, the Aronsons who Coming to the performing, people are like, that's who he's there to watch. But then you have a Chris Mueller. You have an Ayo Akinola who get the chance to emerge. Ayo Akinola has two good games, and Greg Berhalter is talking about him. Greg, Greg Berhalter is texting him. That's incredible that we have a national team coach who is so open to calling up players. That is so open to expanding his pool. Sometimes it felt like Jurgen Klinsmann. You know, you could play three great seasons, and Jurgen Klinsmann wouldn't here. Maybe he'd give you a uh, cap in the January camp, but you know, that was it. But Burhalter, you know, wants to expand the pool. He doesn't necessarily, you know, have his guys. People thought 
Wolchap was Berhalter's guy and Wolchap would have to kill someone not to get called up. Now the call-ups aren't coming for Wolchap because Berhalter sees other people fill that hole. So I think that is where U.S. soccer is doing a great job now, where everyone thinks that, you know, they have a reasonable shot to the national team. They put together some games. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's really cool. You talk about Klinsman. I think he was really invested in his squad and his players. You know, I think about Burhalter and with Brian McBride above him, it seems like there's kind of a cohesive effort from U.S. soccer to not just invest in the players in the squad, but invest in U.S. soccer as a whole. And what that looks like is is talking about these players. Jurgen Klinsmann, he was an optimist, but I think at the same time, he was very pessimistic about the domestic product. But I think Greg Berhalter, being a former MLS coach, understanding the system, having his brother involved in U.S. soccer, he's an optimist when it comes to U.S. soccer as a whole. And you see his brother, or sorry, his son getting his, son getting his first debut, and you see that he's part of the system, and he's kind of more aware of how the system works, and that the integration to the first team is possible for any player, any American player that's playing well. And of course, we want to see you play well and then advance your career. But the first step is really playing well. And I just, it's cool to see an American coach uh, invest in not just the performance, but the general wellness of American soccer players. But I think it's been a really great podcast, of course. Uh, for those who haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. We're on Anchor. We're on Stitcher. We're getting there on Google, Google Podcasts. We have a little RSS code issue there, so we're working on it. For all your U.S. soccer needs, visit onegoal.us and feel free to email us at hello at onegoal.us for your questions, comments, and concerns. Hopefully next week we'll have an interview lined up with a special guest. And we're looking forward to more soccer, more transfer rumors, and all of that good stuff. George, do you have any final questions, final wrap-ups? Yeah, just like you said, this is an exciting time. You know, obviously we went through some barren months when things were stagnant and you have MLS's back. You have guys playing in Europe. You have transfer rumors. It's it's a beautiful thing. You know, you just you just want to breathe it all in. So it's an exciting time. And, you know, we just can't wait to keep bringing you our thoughts and all of that good stuff. So please, again, rate, review, subscribe. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Peace.